Hi, this is Chris Marchand of Between the Songs Podcast. I'm here with Joe Cook to tell you about another podcast we've created, and we hope, if you've enjoyed Between the Songs, that you'll enjoy this one, too. It's called Nostalgic Future Podcast, and that's what it's all about. Chris and I dive deep into our nostalgia, all the pop culture stuff that we grew up with, and we examine how it's influenced our lives and how that continues today and into the future. So join us for fun discussions about some of our favorite movies, television shows, music, books. Really, nothing is off limits. We even have special guests on from time to time to talk about some of their nostalgic obsessions. Check out Nostalgic Future Podcast, available now on all the big podcasting apps. And you can also follow us on social media. It's Nostalgic Future Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we're at Past Future Pod on Twitter. Nostalgic Future Podcast, where the past is the only way forward. Hey, this is Mark Robertson from Ragamuffin Band. You're listening to Between the Songs. Welcome to Rich Mullins Between the Songs podcast. My name is Chris Marchand. I'm here with Joe Cook. And uh, we are happy to present yet another bonus episode uh, of the podcast. Uh, hopefully you're getting used to the, to the bonus episodes right now. Uh, but today we, we have the, the tremendous privilege of being able to give you an interview with Mark Robertson, who, if you're in Rich Mullins land, he is the bass player for the Ragamuffin Band. And if you're in Mark Robertson land, that means you're in like 10 other bands. Uh, Alter Boys. Alter Boys. Uh, he, he mentioned a band, Brighton. Who else we got? This Train, of course. This Train. One of, one of my favorite bands, even though they've only, they only did like three, you know, proper full-length records. But, I, you know, two of their albums are just great to me. Uh, Legendary Shack Shakers and then the Eskimo Brothers. So uh, and, am I missing anything? Well, of course, there is also his latest band who has just released a new album that ha- came out uh, within the last couple of weeks, Prayer Flags. And it's their self-titled uh, debut album. And we're going to be talking with uh, Mark a little bit about that, among other things. Yeah, if, if you go to file13records.bandcamp.com, that's their, uh, their record label. You, you'll find the Prayer Flags uh, record, and you can stream it on, on Bandcamp. I, uh, from, I use Bandcamp for my own music. I, I love the service because you can stream it whenever you want to, and there's a, there's a Bandcamp app. But then also, you know, you can order the vinyl record, too, right, uh, directly from them. So, and Joe, you've done that. I have done that, and it's a great deal. The, the vinyl's only sixteen ninety nine uh, through uh, through through their Bandcamp page. Uh, they got it to me within like two days, and it's just a great record. Um, it's a fun record. It's not a Christian record. We'll be clear of that. It's- yeah, you know, I was I was when we were talking with Mark, I was gonna say, now Mark, I'm a little disappointed because with this band name Prayer Flags, I was expecting a full straight up worship record, and he just he did he disappointed me. I was really sad. <laughs> That it, I was, I, I was expecting more Hillsong stuff. <laughs> so yes, don't go into this blindly. If you're thinking by the name of it that that's what that this is, that is not what this is. But uh, it's still, it's it's a really interesting record. It's it's sort of all over the place uh, in a good way. Yeah, I would say if you listened to, if you were a fan of this train, which is rockabilly. Um, Mark calls it cowpunk, which just Google that if you want to figure out what cowpunk uh, is. 
<laughs> but it, I would say there are hints of the sound of this train in it. I mean, especially because Mark is singing on it. But there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mashing up of genres. Um, you're gonna hear a lot of different sounds on there. It's a, it's a little bit harder edged, but not in the sense that when you think of hard music, that, that's not what this is. I would I would just say go listen to it. File13records.bandcamp.com or just Google Prayer Flags. Yeah, go find it. And I think this is I mean this is kind of a big deal because I think if unless I'm mistaken, this is the first album that Mark has sang on i mean like this is he's the front man of this band and i think this is the first album that he has uh, fronted with a band in 17 18 years yeah yeah kind of crazy you know hey you know p people get older things move a little bit slower uh he mentions in the interview kind of the complexity of his of his band how he's bringing a bunch of different people together and they live they live in different places and so they kind of have recorded when they are when they've been able to over the years so yeah i'm ex i'm excited it, it's it's nice to be able to hear him sing again yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we get to the interview, uh, we should uh, mention our sponsor, St. Rich Beard Oil. Now, Chris, this stuff is blowing up. We just had Matt Walden on our podcast, and he uh, kind of gave us an update from the uh, Rich Mullins tribute concert with Andrew, the Andrew Peterson concert in Nashville. And St. Rich Beard Oil sold out there. Sold Flying out. off the shelves. He's, he's just struggling to keep up with the orders, and I, I think that really, that is a credit to us. Yeah, our ability to sell this product. I mean, we are not making any money from this podcast, but the beard oil is selling out, just because of us. Absolutely, and not a dime of that actually goes into anybody's pocket. It, it is all for ministry. In fact, uh, Adore Ministries in Houston, uh, Matt is selling this. And all the proceeds are going to Adore Ministries. You can look them up online, uh, but it's uh, just a great ministry. And uh, we're happy to be a part of, uh, of that in any small way. And so we just got to thank Matt for, uh, for being our official, unofficial sponsor of this program. So please check out uh, the BetweenTheSongsPodcast.com and click on the St. Rich Beard Oil. And you'll find an email address or a Facebook page or even a website where you can purchase this if you are still looking for the beard oil it's the beard oil of the stars <laughs> yeah uh, if you are a, a nashville musician this this we are we are uh, you know we, we have created something big here really uh now and by, uh, we mean matt and by yeah by us we mean matt we have not even made this beard oil maybe he'll invite us down and we can do a workshop with him and make the beard oil with him homebrew <laughs> yeah, we're going to ferment some beard oil. No, I don't know. Uh, so uh, right before, as we get to the interview, here's one thing that Joe and I wanted to make clear. What you are hearing today is only part of the interview. In, in essence, we invested a lot of time talking with Mark and, and researching Mark and Mark's history with Rich Mullins so that at later episodes, a lot of this material will come back around when we talk about a little bit of Brothers Keeper, when we talk about uh, the Canticle of the Plains, the Jesus Record, and then the Ragamuffins album, when we talk about all these things, this is when a, a lot of this interview is going to come into play. So if, if you were looking for a, a lot of Rich Mullins' story, just know uh, that is coming. Today, in, in many ways, is about talking about Mark and his, his career and his artistry. And he does get into Mullins a little bit, but but we really wanted a, a chance for him to be able to talk about his new Queer Flags album. So, uh, with that in mind, let's go there now. It's like the first time I broke my last straw. I won the coin toss and lost a quick draw. I keep the ups 
Okay, so to our listeners, you're going to no doubt be best remembered for your work with uh, Rich and a Ragamuffin Band and, and maybe with this train. Um, but probably overall, you might be best known for your work with uh, Legendary Shack Shakers. Uh, you know, I... I Checked out your Wikipedia page because I, I wanted to see if you had a Wikipedia article, and, and sure enough, you do. And uh, you know what was incredible to me was that um, Rich Mullins isn't even mentioned in, in your Wikipedia page, which is which is kind of amazing when you think about kind of the the sort of shadow of his that has sort of loomed over so many of the people that have worked with him in his band and uh, or just even been connected with him in, in in so many ways but you've really like i think that's a testament to the career that you've really forged for yourself in the years since then but it really didn't touch on your your ccm years at all and and you have kind of a, a deep history with with uh ccm kind of going way back to the altar boys in the uh in the early 80s um kind of take us back to the, those early days. I mean, I know you were kind of always on the fringe of, of CCM, but how did you kind of find yourself in that scene in the 80s and 90s? Well, yeah, uh, as far as the Wikipedia page goes, I didn't do that page, and I've never edited it. Uh, I just recently found out there was one. But um, so I, whoever did that, that must be their understanding of what, what I've done, you know what I mean? So, but I, I think... You know, in the very early 80s is when I first kind of found some faith. And, and I saw the Altar Boys, and it kind of, you go like, oh, you can integrate the two. You know, you can put it into the yard. And then I just kind of got known in those circles. So, I mean, I think it, it started with a band called Brighton, who uh, who did... Really, just we have one record on MCA that never came out. And that's probably a good thing. And then we signed with a, a Christian label called Pachyderm, and that record did come out. And then at the same time, I was playing bass for the Altar Boys, and I was playing uh, uh, for a band called Allies, do, doing some touring with them. And then I started John and Dino Elefante started bringing me in for session work, and. Uh, so I think I just got established in that scene, you know, playing on other people's records. And, you know, your name pops up enough and people go like, oh, who, who's this guy? And and then when I moved to Chicago, it jumped right in with Cesar Kalinowski and Wonderland Records in the, you know, early 90s. And I did, I don't know how many records I did with him as far as session work. I don't know, 20, 30 records that produced probably five or six records for, for that label. And, uh, and that doesn't even count this train, which was starting then. I, I've been making demos under the name this train since probably 84. And I never really did anything about it until I probably had 75, 80 songs written before I really told anybody I was a songwriter. And, uh, I'd show a few things to friends in other bands that they would, you know, they're like, yeah, that sounds like that crap you like, or whatever. They they didn't uh, they didn't seem to take it that seriously, but I, I thought it was decent. And then when I met Jordan and uh, Chris Wickless, the original drummer of this train, they encouraged me. It's like, no, your voice is, is cool. It's just weird, you know, and, and I, I started getting more comfortable with that. And then, you know, that ties into touring with Rick Elias, which is what ties into Rich Mullins, you know. Because Rick is really the one who put me 
in front of Rich. At the time I met Rich, he didn't know or care about me one way or the other. It's just he needed a bass player in the Ragamuffin Band. And Jimmy and Rick were officially in the band, and they let them pick the rhythm section. So Jimmy picked Aaron Smith, Rick picked me. So were you, you were touring with Rick prior to that then? I was. Uh, when, I, when I first moved to Chicago, gosh, we did this death tour. It was probably four months or more, making comically small amounts of money in a minivan opening for Margaret Becker. And it kind of was, Margaret had a real good thing going at the time, and she's an awesome person. But uh, some of those gigs included opening for Rich, and that's how we got to know Rich. And uh, and it was just fun. You meet this like kind of real weird dude, and you feel a little less weird all of a sudden, and a little less like an outcast. And we, you know, found out we liked a lot of the same books, you know, like maybe A Prayer for Owen Meany, uh that was on Rich's list as well as mine, as well as Rick's. And then uh, maybe Confederacy of Dunces. And uh, then you get into stuff like Chesterton, you know, the more sort of weighty stuff. Chesterton and, uh, oh, Carl Bart and people like that. But it was fun to see somebody who went a little more esoteric with things, you know? So, yeah, I, I would like to get into this train. Um, I'm, I was a fan of this train. It was It was a... It was a strange experience. Like I had gone to Cornerstone. I think it was Cornerstone '96, and uh, I was there to see Cademan's Call. And then you guys popped up before they played, and uh, <laughs> it, it was kind of like a just a, a blast of fresh air. Uh, I was really surprised by you guys. I, I guess my my question is, is somewhat about the the Christian music industry. Like at that time. It seemed like labels, even though they were small labels, they were supporting niche sounds and niche bands. Um, you know, people may not know this, but your record label even threw some money at you guys. You guys did a video for She's a Rocket. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, that, that's. I think that's kind of unique looking back on it. Um, now, my, my, here's my question. Like, did they think they were going to find some success with you guys? And I don't mean that as a, to be insulting. I'm like, I'm honestly asking it. Like, uh, were they hoping that, that this train could kind of right off the coattails of the swing craze. Was that part of it? Well, we sort of predate the swing craze, but that does tie into it. Um, man, I really don't know what they were thinking. And it, it's kind of funny. When when I first started pitching this train to people, that would have been 94, when I worked up the nerve. You know, we had a couple cassette demos that John... Would that be on. this here? Hey, there you go, yeah. <laughs> Irregardless. <laughs> Wait, that's, that's the very first one. It's like you're not going to sign a crappy record deal because that's 
that was kind of the reality of it. 22-year-olds sign bad record deals. 30-year-olds don't. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, now what? You know, and then uh, and John Thompson really believed in the thing, and he was he thought it was fun and, and different enough, and he's very much into the indie scene anyway. So that led to us going with Liquid Discs for uh, the first record, uh, You're Soaking In It, the first real record. But I, I don't know, man. I, I think we didn't have any real illusions with this train. You know, so like, well, it's not a pretty boy band. I, I, I never really was aware of what it would take to be a contemporary, a big contemporary Christian artist. If you know what I mean. It's like I came out of punk rock and skateboards and we were just trying to have fun. Mm -hmm. And we thought if we're having a bunch of fun doing it, someone else will too. Mm -hmm. That was the hope. So we always saw it as a niche thing, but to be honest, it, it probably because of Rich, it grew well past what we thought it could be. We just thought we were going to goof off and I'd play bass for Rich to make a living and this train will play to 20 people, <laughs> you know, whenever we can get around to it. But it, it really worked out well for the band because Rich started giving us a bigger and bigger audience. And I don't remember how Cornerstone got on to us, but they were very good to us and we played several cornerstones and mm -hmm. i mean i think i played the from 1990 to 2000 i played at least with one act every single year of cornerstone that might have been one year it might have been rich and this train one year it might have been rick and something else you know brighton even played cornerstone in 90 on the new band thing and uh, uh i can't remember who else. i played with stonehill there i played with phil keggy there altar boys of course did a really cool reunion show there. Um, gosh, just a bunch of people. But back to the this train thing is just I just didn't I didn't know what it was capable of. We were just goofing off and doing what we thought would be fun. And the band gave me a ton of latitude to to chase down what I was trying to chase down. And you you can tell from the mimes of the old West record. I mean, it's all over the place. <laughs> Some stuff does sound fairly nineties, like nineties rock. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then but some stuff I'm still getting into the Leuven brothers and old Southern Gospel kind of kooky stuff. Do you fear this man's invention that they call it sitting me down he was the head of our label organic records which who put out the mimes record and he said you know i think this rockabilly thing is kind of died out and i'm like dude it was never in you know we, I, <laughs> we're just writing songs man trying to be honest and he really he encouraged us to do more swinging kind of more swing based stuff that's that's the the one 
record in my lifetime where I feel like I bowed to label pressure. And most of this train fans would say it's our worst record. And I agree with them, except I think it has some of our best songs. And frankly, from the very first record, from You're Soaking in It, I wanted horns all over the place. Because I love jump blues, and it wasn't about the swing craze. I didn't know anything about that. I just like old records, those old black rock and roll records. So I thought, I'd love to have a sax or this or that, but we couldn't afford it. You're Soaking in It was done in a basement, you know, on borrowed equipment. And Jordan was just talented enough to pull it off. But from an engineering standpoint. So we went, heck yeah, man, we got money for horns. Let's do it, you know, and we'll make the most of it. And uh, She's a Rocket, actually, a publisher held it for a possible uh, uh, Brian Setzer cut. Like, Brian Setzer actually considered covering it at one point, <laughs> which cracks me up, because now I don't think it's a very good song. She said she was getting homesick for a place she's never been. She says this world ain't no place for a girl to settle in. She's a rocket. You swear you feel the boosters kicking in. Like, it's kind of dopey. The horns were cool as heck if you liked that, or you were put off by it if you went, oh, they're just doing the swing thing. But the song itself is pretty dumb. And there's a couple pretty dumb ones where I was kind of reaching at the end for lyrics. But I, I think the other real horn swing kind of song is called We'll Leave the Light On, and I... Well, I've put that up against anything we ever did. Yeah, that's my favorite yeah. song on that record. Oh, by far. typifies my favorite moments with this train. My, and I, I'm not really truly serious this, with this, but I love jazz. I just love the moment that you created. It was such a unique little thing. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm like sitting here thinking like, where's this guy coming up with this stuff? This guy's out of his mind. <laughs> I loved it though. <laughs> well, that was kind of the, that, that was the idea to paint that picture, you know? Yeah. The, um, 
I think what it was, on a few songs, especially the swing stuff, I was afraid that the band, the core band, wouldn't be able to do a convincing job. Like, we're like punk rock dudes mm. who happen to like rockabilly and country. But we weren't even very good at it. We, we, I think that's what was cool about this train, is we were, we were kind of accidentally inventing our own little niche. Be, in some ways, because we weren't good enough <laughs> to do like jazz in a way. <laughs> so we get these like jazzer dudes or people who understand it. Aaron Smith played drums on a couple of cuts. Mm. And then the sax player, Jim Hoke is really into jazz. Then we had a keyboard player who was it and they're goofing off in the control room between takes doing serious bebop stuff. Which I don't even know what that you know, it's like I don't play that. But I like it. So I said, Hey, do a bunch of that crap and I'm gonna do a rant over the top. <laughs> and I just played I just played the dumbest, most random bass, you know, kind of thing I could come up with. Come up this, is, with. this was the one where uh, Elvis went to Vegas and Miles went to Fusion. That's correct. Yes, <laughs> they both, and they both did. To be fair, um, so so I just had them do it because it sounded funny to me, and they they were really cooperative. And then I took the tracks home that night and just drank a pot of coffee and went nuts. You know. you know what this world could really use about now? Jazz. You're probably thinking, we already have jazz, but we don't have jazz. Not real jazz, anyway. Don't be deceived by the false prophets of jazz. Elevator jazz, doctor's office jazz, double decaf, skinny latte jazz, and worst of all, jazz fusion. Simply owning a saxophone does not necessarily a jazz man make, my friends. Kenny G is not jazz. He is the anti-jazz. You may argue. But his music is so relaxing. Since when was jazz supposed to be relaxing? We need to get back to real jazz, true jazz, 1967 Greenwich Village type jazz. Sonny Rollins, Ornette Coleman, Roland Kirk. And don't forget the king of jazz, the Elvis, if you will, of jazz, Miles Davis. Was Miles here to soothe you, to relax you? No way, man! Miles was here to challenge you, to expand your mind, man. And don't give me any of that. Miles played fusion nonsense. Elvis went to Vegas, Miles went to fusion. The point is, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But Miles rose again from the ashes of fusion and back into the loving arms of jazz. And this is how we thank him? a guy named Ken Nordeen. He's a 60s dude. He did this thing called Word Jazz. And he made records called that, Word Jazz. And they were pretty hysterical, but they were kind of good. He was serious. But he did this real kind of beat poetry over bebop. And that's totally where I got the idea to do jazz. But I was sort of making fun of that whole, <laughs> that, that kind of yeah. beat dick hipster jazz thing. And uh, you know, so, so it was partly serious, partly dilute, you know, just yeah. like caffeine. You know, I don't know what. Well, and, and I, I love, um, I'm probably thinking of the Mimes album, but like some of my favorite moments on that album are the surf rock stuff, like Seafoam Green. Seafoam Green, yeah. And uh, what was it, Hangar 89? I can't remember the number, but ha the Hangar one. Yeah. And, uh, Hangar 84, yeah. Hangar 84, yeah. And I, to me, I just, I mean, I was like, I guess growing up in the 90s, 
I didn't get exposed to things like surfer rock other than the Beach Boys, I guess. And so it was kind of like, what is this stuff? And it was, it was, it was like you were introducing us to something that maybe like kids like me normally would not have gotten. Oh, that's cool. Well, and really, honestly, that was kind of the idea. Hmm. You know, I remember the first time this train played. We just we didn't. I mean, we were living outside of Chicago. There was a rockabilly scene in Chicago. You know, I kind of did push Cobra Joe up first when he showed up. He had kind of he was just got out of college. He had long hair and big sideburns. So like, hey man, how attached are you to that hair? <laughs> we're we're, we're kind of gonna. It was sort of meant to be a reaction to grunge. Where like, there's plenty of people doing that better than we could. <laughs> So let's go. Let's go with bright colors. Let's be funny instead of depressing. Let's let's have, you know go for a kind of a classic look. Or bowling shirts. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that that kind of thing. And and the guys really went for it. And Jordan's the one who really got the surf instrumental stuff. I mean, I was always aware of it, but that stuff goes deep. You get into the, the British side of it versus the American side of it. Then I found all these weird records from like Turkish surf bands. They're terrible. Unless you find that kind of stuff amusing and interesting, which I do. You know what I mean? That's so cool. we just sort of dipped our toe into whatever we could, and we, we had hoped that it would be cool, that other people would discover new kinds of musics. That was, that was one of our big hopes with this train. And I think you could say that for maybe Joy Electric in the, in the electronic thing. I think they turned a lot of people on to like, what the heck is this? And I happen to think their first record is genius. And I'm the only one at True Tunes magazine that did, so I wrote a review about it. And I just don't think people knew that scene existed. So you get, you get like the Martin Brothers, you know, Starflyer and, and Joy Electric. They, they turned a lot of people onto music they would not have known about if all you do is listen to contemporary um, yeah. Christian music. I was just listening to Joy Electric last week. It's funny that you mention it. And I um, and I and I uh, just purchased some uh, Tangerine Dream and some. Uh, uh, some uh, the Audubon album from uh, oh what's the you know Kraftwerk Kraftwerk yeah so anyway <laughs> even creatively it was a big jump between uh, you're soaking in it to Mimes of the Old West and then going on to uh, the the final album um, was that stuff getting harder to emulate on the stage live it, it, uh, as far as like the, making the recorded version work live yeah man I've always seen records. And live shows us two different things anyway. Like, you listen to the Shack Shakers records versus the live show, they have zero in common. And we were very comfortable with that. And I, I, the same goes for this train. I, I think live is live, and it was def definitely more punk rock and more sort of basic. But records, the guys really kind of let me dream the dream because remember in the early 90s, I'm, I'm a pretty young but very ambitious producer. And I'm between your soaking in it and mimes, I made three industrial records under a fake name, you know, um, because that was an early thing in the eighties. I, I did a lot of programming for industrial kind of music and I love sampling and turning any sound into a musical idea. I thought that was, I thought really electronic music was going to become the new punk rock because there were less rules, but sure enough, the rules showed up there too. But so, you know what I mean? It's just like, I'd done so much experimental music and the guys were so cool about just letting me do it. Uh, I, I still can't believe they did that because it, it, it was a terrible career move. But none of us really, 
for some, like we were able to live, you know, we all lived simply, we all drove older cars and lived in small apartments in Chicago and stuff like that. And we have ways, Jordan and I started getting more clients in our little studio and we started getting enough work. We're like, well, why should we figure out how to make this more popular? It'll just ruin it. And sure enough, it did. We tried to, you know, we got the pressure to do the swing thing and it kind of, it kind of didn't do us any favors. Hmm. Because after the Emperor's Band, the label asked me to fire the band and go solo. And Really? Yeah, and they wanted me to do something more contemporary. Because hmm. they had heard some of my songwriter stuff. I had a publishing deal as a writer, too. And they were like, why don't you do this kind of stuff? You know, more, I don't know what. Maybe maybe it might have seemed more contemporary. But like, whoa, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> you know, and uh, it... it I didn't want anything to do with that. I, I did it. I made a few demos and I attempted it, but I just like without the funny part is though, Jordan and Joe were right there. I wasn't, I was, I, you know, it didn't make sense to me in other words. So I just kind of told him to take a hike and really the label folded within a year anyway. And, uh, so no big deal. And, and the world is not worse off for that label being gone. <laughs> Well, let's get into a prayer flags uh, just a little bit. Now, I remember this had to be like three or four years ago now, hearing that you were in a new band called Prayer Flags. And uh, I think you posted a demo on SoundCloud. And having been a big fan of this train myself, I was really excited to see that you were fronting a new band. And then we didn't really hear much for a while. And then like every maybe six months or so, we'd hear like, oh, Prayer Flags played a show somewhere. And it's like, oh, cool, they're still together. Um <laughs> But kind of just sort of waiting to see what was going to happen with this thing. Well, it's here. The album just came out, uh, and uh, so. But but first, before we get into the album itself, like, how did this all come about? Tell us a little bit about Prayer Flags. Okay, um, I have a buddy named Harlow, a very close friend. He's a guitar player, and we got very close very fast in the early two thousands when I moved to Nashville. We both were living in Chicago. We had met, but didn't really know each other. But then I had this residency gig doing, you know, this train used to play at it a lot. And it was very popular in this little hipster bar in, in East Nashville. And Harlow and I started hanging out. We became very close. And he always wanted to do a project together because we're such good friends. He wanted to be in the Shack Shakers. That wasn't right for him. He wanted to do one of my country things. That wasn't right for him. He really just can't play that stuff very well. But he makes great noises. And he's, he's a really cool dude. And he has a great aesthetic. And he's one of the only guys in town I can talk to about pretty obscure bands like Swell Maps or Half Japanese or certain things. You know, he he would indulge those real esoteric things that I that I liked, and I he even turned me on to lots of stuff I hadn't heard. So I said, well, let's just do whatever the heck we want. Let's let's not do roots music. And I, I kind of went like, I'm really good at story kind of songs from this train, but let's not do that let's just not do anything we're good at and try to or that we know we're good at and let's just try and make something up and that's what we did so and the reason the record took forever there's a lot of reasons but you know i tour a lot and play a lot harlow's got a couple kids and he manages a nightclub uh the drummer was uh, a professor of architecture in sydney australia so we only got access to him a couple times a year. And now he lives in London and he's finishing up his doctorate in architecture. So he's a little closer. And uh, there's talk he might take a position at Vanderbilt. 
as a professor. So if that happens, we'll have access to it. But our steel player also, Paul, he's he's in a bunch of great bands. He's in Calexico, in Iron and Wine. He's in, uh, he plays a lot for Justin Towns Earl, Steve Earl's kid. So he's a busy dude. I'm a busy dude. You know, uh, our drummer's busy having the largest brain I've ever seen. And, you know, like, there's a lot going on. So it took us a while. But that's that was just kind of what we did. We, me and Harlow would write a bunch of songs, and when David would fly in to visit, he'd spend the whole time recording drum tracks. Then he, off he went, you know. And then when Paul would get off the road, we'd have him come in and do steel or guitar or whatever. So it was a very drawn-out process. But it, in a way, it's like this train in a bizarre way. It doesn't sound like this train. But the idea was we just went under the assumption that nobody would like it but us. Like, well, let's make a record for us. And I, I know from experience, if you make a record you really love, someone else will too. But I, I can't I can't figure out what people want. I can't work that way. And at this point, I'm 55 years old. So it, I'm not going to be... A, a big star at it anyway and that's as an artist if you know what i mean so i just went well great that takes off all the pressure let's just let's just do something fun and noisy and weird and and i mean i think i think we'll get better as we go you know but this first record i've never i've always had a good engineer as a partner jordan and i worked together for 14 years straight every record i did for 14 years jordan engineered you know, I hadn't done anything since I made my four-track demos as an engineer. Maybe an overdub here and there, and I did a lot of the sampling and MIDI stuff. But this is the first record I engineered top to bottom. I mixed it. I did every every note you hear I record. And I'm not really qualified to do that. But I, I just thought, well, let's just, warts and all, let's just, let's just commit, you know. And I made a few really serious technical blunders along the way that weren't really fixable, but I refused to recut the tracks. I wanted, I wanted it to be an honest representation of what happened. And it is. And I really like the record. I'm charming, and it's weird, and it's fun. And even as weird as it is, I think the songs are pretty catchy. So mm. that's kind of, you know, prayer flags in a nutshell. We play twice a year. What can you tell us about the genre influences? And so I'm listening to this, and I'm kind of trying to deconstruct all the different sounds that I'm hearing. Um, I, I kind of feel like, too, like, I think you should write a book. <laughs> you should write a book <laughs> kind of on, like, uh, almost like esoteric genres and esoteric bands. Um, I, I don't know. Give, give us give us a background on what influenced all you guys to the point that you would make a record like this. Well, I don't know if I could pinpoint it to any band, <laughs> but when I wanted to start Prayer Flags, Carlo thankfully stopped this from happening, uh, but the original version we rehearsed, I was really obsessed with, this will sound stupid, but there's a band called Wall of Voodoo, and you only remember one song of theirs that was called Mexican Radio, but their first EP and their first record, I think are genius, and only I think that, apparently, because I just don't know many people who, who get it. But I saw them live in the late 70s and early 80s, and they always stuck with me. They were so different. They were so punk rock without using any of the punk rock cliches. They, they used a little organ drum machine, but they had a drummer with an enormous kit, but he just walked around most of the show. He didn't hit the drums hardly ever. 
He just walked around and insulted people. And then, th- then they had this weird spaghetti western guitar player and this strange Harry Dean Stanton-looking frontman. It was just so original. And so I went. I want to do a band with two bass players, a drum machine, two drummers that almost never play that just hit occasional things, and you. And we did that, and it was terrible. It, but in my head, it's still an awesome idea. But, but Harlow eventually convinced me to erase the drum machine and bring in this pal of his named David Burns. And the second David started playing, I'm like, okay, now this makes more. This is more honest. And we just got rid of a lot of the electronic stuff. You can still hear me playing keyboards on the record, but I think it's a more honest thing than what I was. What I was dreaming up was a big grandiose. Did that answer your question? Well, yeah, kind of. Um, talk to me about that. I guess uh, educate us a little bit. Um, because when I read like your profile, and I read other bands, uh, like I know some guys um, like locally, I'm in Peoria, Illinois, like they do some harder-edged music. And what I kind of find fascinating is when there are these sub-genres of music. So, uh, I don't know, like what what is cow punk? <laughs> um <laughs> What is swamp rock? What like what are these kinds of these little subgenres? Like br- break some of it down for us, or give us some of the history of it, because I just don't know enough about it. I, they're just terms people make up, you know. But uh, <laughs> I mean, Shock Shakers are, well, you know, I can't. Oxford American started calling us Delta Punk, hmm. and that really caught on. Or Southern Gothic, um, you know. It's just a way to let people get a clue as to what they're about to hear. And, uh, and, and it wouldn't do to call Prayer Flags a rock band because, mm-hmm. you know, it gets into a more of a post-punk art rock kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's like Harlow and I just liked certain bands, but I wouldn't say they influenced Prayer Flags. For, for me, what Prayer Flags was, was taking out things, not putting in things. For example, it's not like, uh, we both love the Swell Maps, for example, and you, if you listen to the Swell Maps, maybe say Jane from Occupied Europe, that record, you can get glimpses of what we do, but it wasn't a huge influence. My, my thing I wanted to do was, at that point I was most popular for being in Legendary Shack Shakers. I produced the records, I love the aesthetic. Of that band, I think J.D. Wilkes, the front man, is an absolute genius. I still do, and uh, but I went like I want to take away everything I'm known for or good at, so the record can have no blues, no country, no surf, no stories, no story songs. They have to be more sort of uh, dream state kind of lyrics. Hmm. I also I wrote the title before I ever heard the songs. But I had to do it at the spur of the moment. Typically, Harlow would bring in a musical idea, and I would... Then you have to open up the computer and make a file to record it, right? And I always went went under the assumption... We threw a few tunes away, but... I went under the assumption that we were going... This was going to be a song, no matter what Harlow plays for me. Because I got this idea, I really like it. I go, great. I turn on the computer. I open up my logic you know, my recording software, and I name the song before I've ever heard a note. And it might be looking at the room and seeing something, and then then my challenge becomes, now the song has to be 
that. And it has to be about that, even though I don't know what that even is. You, you know what I'm saying? So we would just set up these dopey challenges. Hmm. And it was fun as heck. And every single song has some sort of literary reference. I would have to go, I would have to read for a few hours and find a quote. And, uh, uh, give us give us a few. I'm curious. There's a lot of Mark Twain all, all through the record. There's a lot of... Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, or everybody pronounces his name different, but, um, you know, big German philosopher. And, you know, I, I don't know a lot about his philosophy other than he definitely thought he was smarter than everybody else, and he's highly quotable. Yeah. So I used a lot of his stuff, and he did a weird kind of like fake religious book called uh, Thus Spake Thera, Zarathustra. And uh, and it's a funny, weird kind of book where he kind of just makes up his own sort of somewhat Indian sort of deity, and he he speaks from that character. It's very absurd, and I like that. I thought it was kind of a funny idea, like what a crazy idea. But it's, there's some quotable stuff in there. Mark Twain, obviously. I mean, everything that guy ever wrote is quotable. <laughs> so then it might be it might be Old Testament. There's a little bit in there. Um, in the song uh, Dollar Cotton, which uh, Dollar Cotton also is the name of a book by uh, uh, da, 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 John Faulkner, who's the brother of William Faulkner, a very famous writer. But I actually, Billy Bob Thornton had turned me on to John Faulkner, so I think he's a better writer. you got to check this stuff out. So I did, and like, yeah, he is. So that whole song is kind of loosely about sibling rivalry. So you got Cain and Abel. You got John and William Faulkner. Then, then there's even some like Greek mythology in there. I just went, who are brothers who famously fought, or siblings who famously fought for the spotlight? You know, and in some cases, like you know, I don't know, it's a bunch of nonsense. But uh, it, it, it was just we just did whatever seemed fun to do. If that makes sense. Well, you'll never be your brother. You'll never be your brother. He was the one, and you were the other one. Well, did you ever get the feeling you got stuck with a lower ceiling? That's how it is. Nice skylight, though. about Jackson raises his shields. Okay, there's there's a lot of Mark Twain. The entire chorus is Mark Twain, no, word for word. I stole it completely, and uh, which you can, you're allowed to do with books. But um, <laughs> but uh, Jackson is Harlow's son, and he was really small at the time. And Shields is Harlow's daughter, who was also quite young at the time, and. Harlow brought them into um, the studio one day because he couldn't get a sitter. And, you know, our drummer is only in, only in Nashville twice a year. We had to work. So, and they were such sweet. They were real little, too, but they, they were very quiet and sweet. And Jackson came in. He was probably four, and he's wearing a Superman cape and playing with Star Wars toys, you know, like kids <laughs> do. And he's such a sweet 
kid with so much personality. And I saw the Star Wars thing, and I don't know why. I went, Jackson. Then I was thinking of the Star Wars toys. You know, you raise the force field shield, but there's their shield sitting over there reading a book because she's a little nerd. And uh, and it just struck me as cute, and I, I just love those kids so much that I'm like, I've never written a song about a little boy who thinks he's a superhero, so let's do it. <laughs> and then the entire chorus is is just two Mark Twain quotes um, pasted together. So, but it was kind of that simple. We, you know, the drum part was kind of complicated. We were trying to figure out how to write a song to it because actually, in that case, we made David write a song on drums with no music, and we had to write a song to the drums. It it was just one of those things we we forced ourselves to do. And uh, just because we thought it would be fun, but it was it turned out to be really hard. Well, I'm I'm curious to see if if we're correct on on this. Uh, whose voice are we hearing at the beginning of the of the record? I have no idea, <laughs> but something I, I, I've done in a million records. I've done them on this train record, Shack Shakers records. Something you always fight in a recording studio is uh, radio interference. When you have all those. Um, microphones up and you have you know that was just a harlow's particular amp wasn't grounded pop properly and there was a radio station with with a, a preacher and yeah i know they, who it is do you yeah it's it's i'm pretty sure it's the really really famous uh, apologist you know the guy who defends the faith it's ravi zacharias you know who that is I know that name. Yeah, he's like he has like Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. It sure sounds like him. It sure sounds well, you like him. You know what? I have I have seen um, YouTube clips of that guy. Yeah, he's Indian. He's like Indian American. Correct. And I'm yeah. really on the fence about his theology from what I've watched, but um, yeah. But who cares? You know, it, it just sounded really cool. He was getting really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, so I, it's like, oh, said, so, dude, crank your amp. And I just recorded five minutes of it. But then we didn't wind up using any of that. It just so happened right before Harlow play, started playing that song. That's exactly how it happened. He's like, in the matter with no hands, you know, like all that, that, whatever that intro is. It just happened on the intro. And I kept it. In that hospital room with no hands, which she had threatened would never meet again in prayer, as she said to God. He's excited. Takes no limit. Sometimes 
I sort of like records I produced. Like I remember doing one in my house on a guy once, and it was just way too much traffic. So and the, it was weird because the song happened to be called Traffic Light Nine. It was by an artist named Brad Lair. So we just opened the doors and stuck mics in the yard. You're like, if you can't beat them, join them, you know? So it's a matter of like, how can we make that part of the song? Mm. And, you know, uh, I, I, I've done that I don't know how many times. I, I just, I love it because it can, it can kind of reshape the song and why, why not? That, that is fantastic because here we are, we're like, was that Ravi Zacharias? And, and we're, tra- we're here, Chris and I are debating the significance to that in the song. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it made me tweak the lyric a little. Huh. Because I went like, oh, I see this has more of a this to it or whatever, whatever it was. You know, <laughs> I was like, it, it was a pretty heavy handed sermon, the parts I got to hear. But it was radio, you know, RF. So yeah. it kind of went in and out of making sense and in and out of hearing it. Yeah. So I was just getting snippets. But I love grabbing stuff like that because it seems like the best trick ever. And in fact, it's not a trick at all. It's just, some people are very precious about the studio thing where they go like, we got to get rid of any hum or like, well, what if the hum sounds really cool? <laughs> what if it's a good ambience? Yeah. So sometimes if something's humming in a, in the right way, we'll, why not? Why not make that a, a, a like almost like a reverb effect or something? Just put it under there as a pad. Uh, I mean, Jordan used to a lot I don't know how he stumbled onto this but he used to take a guitar amp and set it on its back and then set a, a hollow guitar on top of the amp underneath a piano a grand piano then mic the strings and it created the craziest chords and noises because it's vibrating the strings you know it's like anything can be music and the nice thing about finding those those kind of ambiences is they're not entirely foreign. I'm not using a million effects and making up weird sounds. The Shack Shakers never did that. If there's a sound effect, we went out and made it ourselves. All the blacksmith sounds on the Agrodustrial record was I was in a blacksmith shop for an entire day with a field recorder recording the guy. Mm-hmm. And some of them melted into songs well. Some of them I wrote songs based off of. And no one really can identify it necessarily as that, but they know it's familiar. And that's a, that's this neat thing about music that it's it's the closest thing that actually can take you to the other side, if you know what I'm saying, from the physical realm to somewhere else. It's the only art form I know of that really does it effectively. So I like when you sneak in all those creepy sounds because you don't know what it is, but you know it's something. It's right on the tip of your brain or your soul or whatever. And that makes music really powerful to me. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense at all. No, that, that's what the Beatles did on I Am The Walrus. If, uh, you know, even with live radio, they, they just mixed live radio into, the, into the, the song. And I think I read that John Lennon didn't know for years later that what you were actually hearing at the end of that track is King Lear. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. The... It almost sounds silly to say, but so many things we take for granted are because of George Martin and the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, methodology of modern recording is still so informed by them. And, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they 
they didn't literally start it. You know, there were a bunch of bands you've never heard of and never will who were doing that before them. There was a whole scene in France called Musique Concrète, which was all about assembling found sounds. Now, it's, for the most part, it's unlistenable. It's academic kind of music. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more the exercise was more important than the music you're hearing. Mm-hmm. But the, the Beatles and people like them were able to take that into a, a musical context. Go, how can we use this in a way that also happens to have a catchy chorus? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite uh, things from this train is the, the track Sandy. Uh, which is oh, that's the same thing as uh, Jackson. Exactly, kind of that that found, you know, it was just this freak thing that happened, and and <laughs> I kind of love how creepy that track is. It, it's really creepy. That is that literally happened in one pass. Um, we gave we gave uh, Stony the the we had a lot of CB interference at uh, me and Jordan's first studio, which was in Elgin, Illinois, Roswell East. We had a, it was just a really, we basically rented these office buildings in a, in an abandoned church, an old, uh, which is where the Jesus record demos were done in the church itself. But we had a million issues of CB interference. And there was also a, like a, a Puerto Rican church kind of down the hall. And they show up on a lot of records cause they were, they were just very loud, exuberant people. <laughs> And it would get in our duct work in a really funny sounding way. So I, I used to mic the ducts a lot to, to try and grab that. But Sandy is, there's a, a CB truck driver guy named Stoney, apparently. We never found him, but and his wife went under the name Lady Stoney, which, and they would always, like, it seemed like, I don't know how many sessions we'd have to stop the track because Lady Stoney's trying to figure out where Stoney's at right now. You know, is he coming home yet? Is he not? And and then that particular night, I brought in this other this extra guitar player to do some stuff we didn't feel like we were capable of. We some hotshot dude, and we only had him for like two hours. So sure enough, Stony is in full tilt trying to do the come on to Lady Stony. So that's where all that Sandy, you know, all that weird sexy voice stuff is. So I'm like, well, let's. Let's do like a kind of a girl from Ipanema kind of sexy Latin beat to go to help Stony out here. <laughs> we just started playing along to the CB track, but there's no editing on that whatsoever. Yeah. We made up on the fly, and we just recorded it as a snippet. On the sandy shores, I get you gloomy. Thank you. See, see, 
this is kind of this to me. This is like Beatles level stuff. It's like, yeah, where were they when they, uh, you know, how how do they do all of it? So it's I, I appreciate the peek into the. Well, <laughs> I think music should be like that. It's a music is really fun, and the studio. I mean, I I give a lot of credit to Jordan Richter, who was a guitar player of this train and my studio partner for years. He just would indulge any stupid idea I had, and he would figure out how to make it work on a technical level. It's like, and I tend to produce in in a weird way sometimes with that. It's like, you know, I remember telling an engineer once once Jordan moved away, he lives in Portland now, and I was using other engineers, and I. I'd be like, yeah, that this track sounds really good. Is there anything we can do about that? You know, it, it, it sounded too like everything else, you know. And it's, I know there's a still always going to be a great indie scene of more adventurous types, but we live by a, a, a big Christian music college called Belmont College. I don't know if you've heard of it. They have a great music and music business program. And a lot of Christian artists come out of there. But it's, I see these bands on a weekly basis around town, and it breaks my heart because they all sound like Coldplay or U2. You know, really, they sound like Coldplay ripping off U2. And <laughs> it's always a slow, moody intro and a lot of whoa, whoa, whoa choruses. It stays on the same chord progression. It builds up into this big thing. They don't really tell you what they're talking about, but it alludes to it, you know. And it's... It's like, do we need more of that? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't need any more of that. Uh, if I needed a slow, brooding, epic, genius record, I own Unforgettable Fire by U2. That's the only one you need. <laughs> if you want big and epic and, you know, cinematic, I don't, I don't need some dude who's never really lived any real experiences. I mean, no offense. It's <laughs> great. To those guys, you know, it's like, I don't believe them. Hmm. So a lot of people in music, they, they they copy something they think is cool, and it never, ever, ever really works. Because really, the, the only story you can tell is yours. And yours is way more interesting than you think. Because where you're from, like in Nashville, I get, you know, there's bands from Boston that like act like hillbillies because they like the country music scene. Like, okay, that's just disingenuous. There's a million great stories in Boston or wherever you're from. There's a, you know, tell your story. It's way more interesting than anything you could make up. Mm. So you have to speak from your own experience and where you're from. And the, there's the combinations of things that, that make a person a person. You got the only one of those, which makes your story uniquely good. But most people don't trust that. We're all afraid the world's, the world's going to think out, figure out we're even less cool than we think we are. You know what I mean? So we're always trying to create these characters. And it's just, it's, it's really sad. And if there's anything about Rich Mullins, is the dude just had no ability to fake it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wrote those big, huge hit worship songs, but he likes church music, liked church music. He liked corporate praise. But he was possibly the best singer-songwriter ever in Christian music. You know what I mean? But that was just because he was being honest with who he was. Mm -hmm. I personally was never a fan of his praise music. Um, um, he knew that, you know, like, I think Awesome God is a horrible song. <laughs> it's just terrible. But 
the band after Rich died, the band made me sing it because <laughs> nobody wanted to sing it. But none of us liked that song. They made me sing it, and then you see, you played anywhere from five hundred to five thousand people, and it means a lot to them. And everybody sings together, and it's powerful as all get out. Like, okay, I get its its function. From an art level, no way would I write a song like that. I could never pull it off. But Rich meant it. We we just had a. I actually I live in Window Rock. And uh, we had a tribute concert uh, to Rich a few uh, a few weeks ago, and right. and so inevitably somebody had to sing "Awesome God," and I I sent a message to Mitch and I said, "Would you be okay singing "Awesome God" during the finale?" So he never responded to me. But a few days before the show, he was in the area, so I went to see him, and uh, he said, "By the way," he said, "I never answered your question." He said, "Yes, I will sing "Awesome God." even though it's pretty much my least favorite Rich Mullen song of all time. Uh, I don't know. Singing Praise of the Lord is even worse. <laughs> but it's a really it's a really cool arrangement. It's really hard to play. It was fun as, from a mu- musician point of view to play. But, yeah, I can see that. You know, I don't know if, if you were there at the time, but before the very last Rich Mullins tour, we were in Window Rock for because Rich didn't use the Ragamuffin Band on the last record. He wanted to do this weird kind of thing. of all. It had to be all single men. Or young men, really. I was the oldest guy there, besides Rich. And I think I was 32 or 33 or something. And everybody else was like between 18 and 25. They were all single. We went on camping trips. We went. We did a weekend retreat with Brenda Manning. I don't know why. Rich just wanted this, like, dude tour. We all set up our own gear. We had no crew. Jordan ran the PA. Me and Jordan drove the equipment truck. It was brutal. And we practiced, we had to practice like 12 hours a day because these kids, they had no focus. They're young musicians. They couldn't play this stuff. They had to practice it 12 hours a day, which bummed me out because I, I knew every song that I had to sit there and practice for 12 hours a day. So I started getting more and more irritable as time went on. <laughs> and uh, But for some people, like Cobra Joe had to learn how to play Hammered Dulcimer for that tour. And he did. But it took this crazy amount of practice but during that time i actually wrote for the emperor's new band a complete swing horn arrangement of awesome god i thought let's figure out a way we can do it that's cool (laughs) but there is no way the lyrics are terrible (laughs) or that's terrible to say but um this is nothing i never told rich by the way so he thought he thought it was really funny that the ragamuffin band couldn't stand most of his praise stuff we liked we liked calling out your name and the color green and creed you know those those were powerful those were statements we could relate to you know something that came from a more personal place rather than the in the praise kind of thing you're writing about us you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. it's not personal it's like we have come to do these things and we feel this way about that do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Versus singer-songwriter approach would be, I feel this way about this and that. Mm-hmm. And I, I like Rich's more personal stuff. And I, But the weird part, I think Rich originally, I mean, he probably wrote some of that. I think he wrote it for it's sincere reasons. I don't think it was for a buck because Rich never made any money. I mean, his business, so to speak, made a ton of money. But as you know, Rich never... He didn't, he didn't know how many records he sold. He didn't keep his money. 
it went to a, a, a group of advisors and they would fund projects. And he basically say how he wanted to build a school in Guatemala or wherever it was. I can't remember now. And he had a specific mission. So he went to his, his advisory board and said, how, how long do I have to tour to build this school? They said, you know, three months. So he'd call you up and he was like, hey, man, we got a three month coming up. It's mm -hmm. from here to here. Are you cool? You know, and and that's what he would do. But he didn't know how much money he had. He didn't know how much, you know, I didn't know until I was in the band for three years that I made more money than him. And it came because we were complaining to the manager, Gay, that we weren't making enough money. You know, we saw it as a business, too. We were like, dude, we're playing for thousands of people a night. We're making a thousand bucks a week. This is this ain't kidding it. And we went, we went to Rich because the manager went, well, well that's what you get. You're just going to have to be cool with it. We're like, well, we're not. So we went to Rich. Like, Here's the deal. He's like, oh, really? That's all you guys make? Let's figure this out, man. I, I hope you guys get it, but I'm, I can't intervene too much i'll just tell gay i think you guys deserve a raise or whatever but and then and so, then I, I realized he he made 24 grand a year at the time of his death he his his uh board paid him the salary of the average blue collar american male his age and that they we give him a stipend so pretty crazy stuff I don't know why we how we morphed all the way over there, but sorry about that. Well, I, I have one last question. Um, so, you know, this this pertains to your music and to your own career. Uh, you're not exactly within Christian music anymore, and you've been in some weird bands. Joe and I were wondering, <laughs> uh, have you ever received any criticism from CCM people or Mullins fans? You know, kind of like, hey, man, why are you in this kind of band? Uh, and, and if so, like, what's your response to that? How do, you, how do you respond to people if they're if they're curious, like, what's he doing in the Shack Shakers? Yeah, well, to be honest, people have been nicer than I would have expected. I, I was totally anticipating a lot more criticism than I got. Um, and I don't... I don't have an answer other than... I'm kind of an, I don't know a not pretentious way of saying this, but I'm just an art dude. I like art. And I like, as a, when I'm a bass player, the only consistent thing you could find in a band I would stick with for a long time where I'm not the singer or the artist. I'm just playing bass and helping out, maybe producing the records. I need somebody who really believes what they're t talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so if you go back to the Ultra Boys... I got criticism for that because their statements were so simple, almost like punk rock cheerleaders, you know, like real simple, big statements, kind of big, dumb rock. So my art rock friends are going like, how can you play in this band? You know, it's like, like, have you seen him? It was incredible live. Mike Stan's one of the greatest frontmen ever. And he believed every word he wrote and he sings like he believes it. I can get behind that. Would I write? When you're a rebel, no, I wouldn't. But I love that somebody did, and I love how much it means, how much conviction he can sing that lyric with. Then you go to Rich, like absolutely, that mirrors a lot of things I thought about where I was coming from spiritually and where the books I like and the fact that he could go kind of esoteric and I'd be like, oh man, you swiped that from Chesterton. I wonder how many people know. 
and Rich went really deep. And it was, you know, it was a, it was also not to be crass, but it was a, it was a decent living. You know what I mean? But I, I would have done anything Rich asked. The last tour, he said, I can't promise what your salary will be. We're, we're doing this. I'm just going for something here. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't pay you your salary, but I'll pay you something. You just got to trust me. You're like, absolutely. Let's go. I would have done anything Rich asked. But it came to stuff like that because I really, really believed in him. And part of the reason I stopped doing Christian music was I'm not bitter. I'm not jaded. I'm not any of those things. But I don't want to be in a band that sounds like Coldplay. And I don't. I kind of think Rich did it the very best it could be done. This is just from my point of view. And once Rich was gone, I just had less motivation to seek out those kind of projects, if you know what I'm saying. Meanwhile, my buddy JD is trying to do the Shack Shakers, and he's struggling, and I totally got what he was going for. And uh, But the live presentation was pretty crass. So yeah, a lot, some of my Christian friends would come to the shows, and they were pretty disappointed by it. But again, it's art. I, I don't happen to think God's feathers get too ruffled by different presentations of it do you know what i mean i don't i don't think anything is foundationally challenged by any point of view the truth's going to come out eventually and you know what i mean it, it all kind of uh, sifts back down i i had no issue being in the shack shakers i didn't quit the shack shakers for that re- for pressure from from my christian friends or anything like that and a lot of my christian friends slowly started to get it they were like i, I see what you're going for i see why you do that and then this, you know, like maybe prayer flags is more of a hodgepodge of you can find some spiritual stuff in there if you're looking. Some of it's utter nonsense or, or stream of consciousness, but it's an honest record. But that's what I just that's what I really want from from any artist mm-hmm. is is honesty. Eskimo Brothers, yeah, in a way, that's slightly more crass than the Shack Shakers. It's not as gross because JD was a very gross frontman at times. But, I mean, they talk about kind of goofy, childish sort of subjects, too. But again, great front man who really means it and really goes for something. But it, it has no effect on my personal life, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. People assume you say you're hanging out, well, you're hanging out in this bar with these people, so you must be tempted or whatever. I'm like, not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know where you're coming from, if you have a certain amount of grounding in who you are, you're that stuff just looks silly. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's way easier to avoid than it sounds. Mm-hmm. It's like you're not going to find out. I mean, we're all going to die someday, but mine ain't going to be of a drug overdose. You know, I did that when I was a teenager. I, I know all about that stuff. It's not a temptation to me, mm-hmm. being even if I'm around it all the time. It's it's like if you know who you are, and you start learning to like who you are, all that stuff you just see it for what it is. So when people think of it as a temptation or you're condoning something, I, I, I don't see it that way at all. I, I'm playing bass and trying to be an artist mm-hmm. and trying to do things artfully. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in my world who used to do drugs don't anymore. I was, helpful. I was able to be in a helpful place for that. Do you know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I, I, I don't 
I don't like the modern church idea of having to be totally cleaned up before you get there, before you're accepted yeah. into the church. That's wrong. That's that's not scriptural. Mm-hmm. If if you know what I'm saying. Well, I think the modern American church is is in a lot of ways looking for safe, you know, and in some ways what that has done is rendered us almost ineffective uh, in that, you know, we, we associate almost solely with other Christians in Christian environments, <laughs> um, which isn't exactly what uh, we are called to do. Correct. Correct. And, and it's kind of a shame, you know, it's uh the whole, the whole concept of a personal walk, personal relationship, well, is it or isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like my part of what left, left me out of California when I was young was like it just wasn't personal. It was so shepherding and so it's like you feel like you have to fill out an application and qualify to be part of the part of a church. And I just wanted nothing to do with that personally. But I found somewhere in Chicago or outside of Chicago, there was more. Yeah, they took everybody right as they came. Right as you were, you know they 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 let, they let you be who you are, and let you start working on on things. I found that a much more refreshing way to do things. Have you found you know, anything they, like that in Nashville? Pardon me. Have you found a you know a community like that in Nashville, uh, like a Christian community? Is there something that exists for you that you've been able to find? It's tricky. There's a cultural thing that go, goes with it in Nashville. Sometimes you know the Southern thing. Mm-hmm. Which I love living here. I love the South. Um, I kind of started going for something where I kind of, I've always, Rich and I used to kind of jokingly debate about this a lot. He's He, he always asked, what, he's like, what, why won't, won't you really fully commit to a to a church? I'm like, because I don't like preachers. I, I just don't. I don't, I don't. It becomes very cult of personality very fast. It becomes monetized or politicized. It they start talking about voting, which I don't think should even be talked about in the church. It's like um, personally, that that's up to the individual's convictions, and, it, and I think it should be private. So I started going uh, more like say uh, Saint Bartholomew's uh, Episcopal Church in Green Hills because they sort of. The, the personality of the priests is much more lessened. They're not rock. The priests aren't rock stars. Like a like, a, I won't name names, but you know the big rock star pastors, who, who are very famous, and they they'll even say something that's not doctrine, but as far as their congregation is concerned, it is. And that's scary stuff to me. So I think I, I started. Rich was kind of leaning that way too at the end of his life, where the personality, because of the liturgy. It, it it was more corporate than about one person telling you what's going on, and the the priest was part of a service as opposed to being the dude. Mm-hmm. If you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I go to an Anglican church, so we're pretty big into yeah. We all kind of like gather around the liturgy together, so it's like something that's way bigger than ourselves. We love I love that personally. Absolutely, I think it's important. It also it has a more ancient feeling, like we've been doing this for a long time. It has it has a cool thing. I mean, it's a scary, dangerous thing, and it's funny, I come out of that movement. I mean, I come out of that early 80s, 
you know, Altar Boys and all those kind of bands, you know, Lifesavers and the choir and bands taking some risks, you know, Terry Taylor, all his projects, really risky within, I don't think people realize how risky it was to be Daniel Amos <laughs> in the early eighties. It's not, it wasn't an acceptable thing. Mm-hmm. You, you got, you, you know, you got attacked way more by the church than, than anybody else for doing what you do. So it was trickier to just be an individual back then. And those, those guys fought hard for it. Alter Boys, Terry Taylor, Mike Knott, some of those guys. They they fought very hard to to do what they do because they believed what they were doing was, was right. And it's just gotten trickier and trickier. We got more sort of like dress codes and rules about the whole thing. You know, it's, 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 it's not right. So, you know, I... I tend to be very careful with what I say these days uh, when it comes to when it comes to faith because a lot of people mess me up for years. I don't do a lot of things, hmm. and I, it's not their fault. They're trying their best, but it was destructive, and I, I am determined not to be that to somebody else. Hmm. If that makes sense, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Quick, quick little question: Did I read somewhere that you uh, might be recording with the Altar Boys, or, or there, is there something like that going on? Yeah, I wasn't supposed to leak that as it turned out, but I did. <laughs> okay. All, all, all I can say about it right now is, you know, it's like, I, I'm not an original member of the Altar Boys. Mm-hmm. There was a bass player named Rick Alba, who I'm still friends with. He's a terrific guy, great musician. And uh, he had, you know, kind of, he had his reasons for leaving the Altar Boys. So they're a very tight-knit group. I started touring with them heavily, and the band took on a very different change. They really welcomed my aesthetic into the band, and they were very cool to me about that. It allowed me to grow. <clears throat> blah, blah, blah. Mike's thinking of going back to college. Jeff, the drummer, he started. He developed a disease. I can't remember what it's called, but it was affecting his lung capacity. So it was getting harder for him to play loud drums. Um He's still, he's a worship leader to this day, but he has a hard time playing real physical loud drums. The guitar player, Steve Paneer, he's kind of waning in and out with his interests. I'm going through a total crisis. I was going through a divorce. I was just a mess. And those guys were very supportive and helpful through that, way more so than my church. And uh, my church seemed more concerned with how it would look for me to be divorced, but the divorce wasn't my idea, you know, so it's... I didn't know exactly what to do about that. It, it, uh, but anyway, the, what am I trying to say about that? Um, Mike made a million demos for a new record. We were playing them live, and the record was going to be called No Substitute. But all those things are happening. I'm having a meltdown. Mike's thinking about college. Blah, blah, blah. I One day I just told him, like, hey, man, I'm... I'm escaping L.A. I, I packed a U-Haul. I sold almost all my possessions. And I, I was like, I'm going to Indiana to live with my folks for three months, and I'm moving either to Chicago or Nashville. I don't know which yet. And that's what I did. So Alter Boys just only played like two or three times a year. They'd fly me in. We'd do a couple of gigs. But we kind of put the record on the back burner. And then the record never came out. And it was always one of my biggest career disappointments because I, I feel like I was part of this new version of the Ultra Boys that was really interesting and cool. 
and it never happened. No one ever got to see it, except if you were at one of those reunion shows or we did a couple charity things, you know, uh, when Gene Eugene died, we did something to help with his funeral expenses. We got back together for that. And because fortunately, Alter Boys still have a thing. If we got together today, people would come. And that it's nice to know if we can do some good, then let's do it. You know, it got tricky within the last two years because Jeff really can't play drums at all anymore. He just can't do it. No way could he do an Alter Boys show. He doesn't have the lung capacity anymore. But, um, if you ever saw him play drums back then, you'd realize how much lung capacity it took. It was a very, very physical thing. So, anyway, Mike, I don't know why, a couple, like last week maybe, he sends 12 demos he did that his son helped him kind of, his son is now a recording engineer, and he helped him rescue these old four-track demos. And Mike said, would you guys all listen to this? I kind of think I want to put this record out but here's my only rule. We have to keep the original vocals because I don't think I could ever top them, even though they're on this grainy cassette. But I listen to it, and they sound amazing. They're really beautiful. They're totally worth keeping. Mm. And we're going to attempt... He's got this four-track cassette, so we're going to attempt to have Mike's uh, son, Keith, play drums to the demos. Then... They'll send me the demos, and I'll add some things, send them back, and we're going to try to erase everything, but a couple guitars here and there, Mike's, and Mike's original vocal will stay, if we can pull it off technically. If we can, I think it's going to be really special, because the songs, some of them take you right back to, you know, when you're a rebel type altar boys, the real simple early records, gut level music, and some are a little more sophisticated, like Mike's solo work and maybe the last couple Forever Mercy type stuff. But it's just it's like this awesome, I, I, mean, I was getting choked up, it was taking me back to, you know, it's like how music does, you know, like I hear this one part of a song and all of a sudden I'm at In-N-Out Burger in California having a burger with Steve Paneer from the Ultra Boys and talking about what we wanted to do and, you know, it just takes you right back. So... I think we should do it, and I think we will do it, and I think it's going to take a year or two to pull it off hmm. with everybody's schedules. But uh, that's the plan. Cool. Man, Mark, we really appreciate you taking this much time with us. Yeah, it's been yeah, great. I probably should go do some grown-up work. For, i got a gig tonight, so. There you go. Hey, uh, you know, I hope you become world famous with prayer flags, so that's great. <laughs> Nah, I've become neighborhood famous for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great record, though, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, just have fun. All right, we'll see you around. All right, take care, guys. Hanging in the air like brickstones. Sit around and stare like bathstones. We'll keep it subtle. We'll double. We'll all afford this sick and shit. Come on! So thanks again to Mark for being part of the podcast. And again, look for much more material of Mark to be interspersed throughout the, the coming episodes between the songs. Obviously not as we go through Mullins' early albums, but they're coming along later. Now, one thing I hope that you really heard in, in our talk with Mark 
uh, two things. One, the guy's an artist. Well, actually, three things. The guy's an artist. He loves to just pursue uh, uh, wherever kind of his creative endeavors take him. I, I just think that's brilliant. I love the, the fact that the guy loves to meander and wander around and discover new things. Number two, the guy is a walking history book of weird music. And like, I was trying to write down some of the names of the artists and stuff, and I did some of it, but I'm just kind of like, man, this guy, this guy has an encyclopedic knowledge of crazy music. So that's number two. Did you, what, did you as, as during the interview, we smile and nod and, and act as though we know, we've heard of these bands, which we Yeah. Have. He's just like, yeah, I was listening to this Brazilian jazz trio, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. So I, I think that's amazing. I, I would love to just, I, I, I was serious. I said, write a book, man. He should. I think he could write, really kind of give us some interesting history on, on some of these bands. But nonetheless, okay, so that's number two. Number three, the guy is a blue-collar working musician. And what I mean by that is he is just like, it, it is his, it's like his, it's his calling to just work to do gigs, to do studio time. And of course I'm envious. Like I, 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 and some of me thinks I would love to live that life. Some of me thinks I think it'd probably be hard to be on the road a lot, uh, to, to constantly be playing gigs, but it's in Mark's blood. And I, I really appreciate the fact that he is a, a working musician doing his thing. It's quite, it's really quite impressive. Anyway, that's all I want to say. My, my reflections. So we want to thank Mark Robertson for, uh, for being on the program with us again. There's a lot more coming from Mark that you didn't get to hear today. In fact, our, uh, you heard maybe a little over an hour. Uh, we were on the phone with him for like three hours. So there's a lot of stuff coming on future episodes of Between the Songs. What we're going to do right now to close uh, the program is uh, back, this must have been about 2005, the uh, Ragamuffins took part in, in an album that was released through the Legacy Ministry. It's a really obscure album. Totally way out of print, hard to find, but uh, I recently found a copy of uh, a CD called Songs from Ben's House. So we're gonna, we thought it would be cool to end the show with Mark singing uh, what I believe is one of his favorite Rich songs. I, I know that uh, This Train used to do this song in concert as well. Uh, this is Mark and the Ragamuffins and Somewhere. Your spirit is leading me somewhere 